we bided our time producing this episode. Not because a Pentagon report on UFOs isn't a worthy or fascinating subject, it is. When the government announced that it would release a report on strange aerial phenomena, public excitement and media coverage began to grow and grow and grow as the deadline neared. Is the truth really out there? We may soon find out. Newly leaked military videos and witness accounts from former Navy pilots have taken the prospect from science fiction fodder to the halls of Congress. A U.S. intelligence report on UFOs is expected to be released very soon. But the hullabaloo was fueled by speculation about what might be in the report. Would the report provide the long-awaited evidence of alien visitation? Well, people had opinions. Well, we wanted to wait until the report was released, and it has been released, and now we have opinions. It's the first government UFO report to be made public in 50 years, so it's caused a stir. But what do the conclusions reveal about alien visitation? I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. In this, our regular look at critical thinking, we ask, does a government report provide evidence of aliens in our skies? What were once called UFOs are now called UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. The name has changed. Has the quality of the evidence changed as well? This episode is Skeptic Check, Pentagon UFO Report. Before we discuss what is in the report, a bit of context. After all, this report didn't just drop out of the sky, and this is not our first UFO rodeo. Not for me, not for this show, and definitely not for the country. This is why the anticipation around the report for some has been at fever pitch. We have long had a fascination with the idea of alien visitors. Back in what seems like simpler times, seven decades ago, pilot Kenneth Arnold saw some objects moving at high speed near Mount Rainier in Washington state. He described the objects as moving like saucers skipping across a lake. This was misrepresented in the press as meaning that the objects were flying saucers. In less than a decade, Hollywood had bought into the notion of cruising crockery in our skies. Flying saucers have invaded our planet. Washington, London, Paris, Moscow are key targets. The whole world is under attack. Can it survive? Earth versus the Flying Saucers is not my favorite alien visitation film, but I gotta say it was kind of neat to see the Washington Monument sliced up by a saucer. Science fiction has fueled an irresistible idea that Earth is a regular destination for alien spaceships, but also that the government has suppressed evidence of these visits by hiding alien bodies and the pieces of the craft they rode in on, perhaps at a military base such as Area 51. Well, shows like The X-Files took this idea, soaked it in rocket fuel, and lit a match. Whether it's organic or the result of those marks, I can't say. But to say that they've been riding around in flying saucers, it's crazy, Mulder. There is nothing to support that. Nothing scientific, you mean. Our cinema sci-fi dalliance here is fun, but it's also relevant. The history of UFOs, and that was a term that was coined in the 1950s, is important in understanding the role that wanting to believe has played in our interpretation of mysterious things we see in the sky. Fiction seemed to become reality in December 2017 when the New York Times reported that a government UFO program 
did exist. Now, it wasn't the first government UFO investigation. There were projects Sign, Grudge, and Blue Book in the 1950s and 60s. This new one, called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, or AATIP, ran for five years before ending in 2012. You gotta love those acronyms. The fact that the government did have a secret UFO program blew metal gaskets. Although the program was unclassified, it was also unpublicized, which validated the suspicion that there had been a secret government program. We've spoken with the New York Times reporter on this story about the UFO phenomena, Leslie Kane. I think what's unusual about these is that the way they behave just can't be explained through any technology that we have that we know of. And for instance, this would involve objects that can hover and then take off at the blink of an eye and just are gone. But we also talked to former Air Force pilot James McGahey, who had thoughts about the videos from Navy fighter jets that had been leaked to the public. I would say that I look at data and evidence. And if there is no evidence, then it's not science. And it's not interesting to science. There is zero evidence. There is zero empirical evidence that the Earth has ever been visited by an alien spacecraft. Simple. That's it. For ufologists who wanted to be taken seriously, the discovery of a government program was a dream come true. But for anyone who wanted specifics that could withstand close scrutiny, well, they were left wanting. That was three years ago. Then... In the spring of 2020, we had liftoff again. The government officially released three Navy videos, which had been leaked and were already circulating publicly. Navy pilots said the flying objects in the videos were maneuvering in ways that known aircraft could not. Then, in the summer of 2020, a new government program popped up. Remember that the secret AATIP was defunct by this time. Well, the new UFO program was its direct successor, the UAPTF the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force. Okay, a couple of things were different now. For one, the term UFO was replaced by UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. The government seemed to be distancing itself from the UFO craze and not implying by its name that these were necessarily flying objects. And by legitimizing the program, the military hoped that pilots would feel more at ease reporting strange things. Now, this all seems fair enough because we do want to know of anything that happens to be in our airspace. And the second thing that was different is the findings of this recent program would be made public. Congress gave the Pentagon a deadline for releasing the report, and as the deadline drew near, some members of the public were quite excited at the idea that finally the government might have evidence that alien spacecraft really are in our skies. So here we are. Years of anticipation are kind of coming to a head. And now the UAP task force report has dropped. It tells of 144 UAP reports made by military pilots between 2004 and 2021, but mainly from the last two years. And of those sightings, the government explained one. It was a balloon. Are the conclusions reached in the report a game changer then? I am James McGahey, retired United States Air Force pilot, astronomer, and skeptic, and have been investigating UFOs for over 40 years. We invited James McGahey back for an overview of the government's conclusions regarding the other 143 unidentified phenomena. They didn't appear to be anything extraordinary, but they didn't know exactly what they were and what how they could explain them. And they also concluded that there was definitely a bias effect on this because most all of these reports occurred inside military operating areas, 
where exercises were going on that may be unaware to everybody operating there. This report, does it even say anything about aliens? No, it's, the report says nothing about aliens whatsoever. It's trying to cut down the middle of saying, well, maybe there's something flying around that we don't know what it is, and maybe we should investigate it. The problem is the intelligence people who look at this kind of stuff are not technical people and not really trained in analysis of aerial phenomena or imaging or all kinds of other things in the atmosphere. So when they see something they don't understand, they all automatically assume mysterious consequences of this. What is really needed is a very detailed technical analysis of this uh, because it's going to be found to be nothing but prosaic explanations. I'm going to take a little bit of the advantage here of your experience as a military pilot to maybe elucidate with an example or two what are meant by the categories in this report. The first one was airborne clutter. Well, that's that's an interesting term. I, I, I've never, as an Air Force pilot, I've never heard that. If they mean uh, some kind of uh, jamming for radar or chaff or something like that, but I don't think that's what they were meaning. Okay, so airborne clutter, I mean, you know, birds and balloons, drones. You can have clutter. You, if they mean anything flying around out there, yes. There's all kinds of things that can show up on infrared or visual cameras. At particularly when they're at a distance and you have no resolution, you just have a, a bright spot, a light in the sky. That's all you've got. Well, what about the second category, natural atmospheric phenomena? There are lots of natural atmospheric phenomena, temperature inversions, uh, all sorts of uh, phenomena, electrostatic charges in the atmosphere. They account for many uh, things that are seen. We have ball lightning, St. Elmo's fire, uh, sprites, all kinds of uh, various atmospheric cloud phenomena that are natural. Some of them are rare, but appear periodically and people see them and automatically assume that it's an alien spacecraft. Well, I think one of the bombshell findings uh, in this thing, and the thing that's maybe really news is that the report says that a handful of these UAPs appear to demonstrate advanced technology. Now, that handful was 21 of the 144 reports. Advanced technology, what do they mean? Or is that just because they're intel people and they don't know what they're looking at? That's true. That they, They're saying that they have advanced technology, but they don't know all the technology is actually being used just to image these. What they're seeing here is nothing but low-resolution lights in the sky. They don't have any resolution. They don't have any velocity vectors on them. They don't have size information or distance information. So you're just seeing a light. You can't say anything about this demonstrating advanced technology. It's just lights that are moving. Well, that, that sounds a little bit like, a, you know, a fly uh, crosses my field of vision here in the room and, uh, you know, thinking that it's actually miles away, I say that, my God, that object uh, demonstrated advanced technology by moving at 10,000 miles an hour. I mean, it, it's just interpretation of the data, perhaps, then. What's very interesting to note is this is almost all Navy aircraft and a few ships. And the Air Force hasn't reported this kind of thing. 
And maybe because of the instrumentation of an Air Force aircraft is considerably different. Now, forward-looking uh, infrared, of course, works best out over water, and which is where um, Navy jets operate most of the time. And so th there's all kinds of issues that were related to this as well. Yeah, it sounds like the old Pogo uh, aphorism, you know, we have met the enemy and they is us. I mean, the fact that you see more of these phenomena near military installations may be just what we call in astronomy, a selection effect. The data that you're taking are, are all in those areas. So maybe it's, you know, just an artifact of, of how you're sampling. Very true. And almost all of these reports that they have are in military operating areas, which is where military exercises and operations are taking place. You know, we're hearing a lot from pilots as witnesses to something otherworldly, right? And people think, okay, Navy pilots, they're not, they're not going to be lying to us. They're reputable observers. Pilots have been touted by the UFO community for 70 years as trained observers. They are not. They never have been. I never once received a single training module in my whole Air Force career on how to identify unidentified flying objects, not once. They're not trained observers. And in fact, they're prone to pious pilot bias that some people call it, that they're never wrong. Pilots have big egos. It goes with the territory. They can't be wrong. And they're always looking outside, looking for other things that, not, that they don't want to run into. So they automatically assume if they see a light that it's something that is dangerous to them. This is, of course, not true when they see Venus. I have seen pilots personally see Venus and take maneuvers to avoid hitting it. So you were a military pilot, James. Did you ever see something that, uh, you know, might have been something from another world? I can say as a pilot, that I have many thousands of hours flying day and night. Never once in all of those thousands of hours and tens of years of flying did I see anything that I actually couldn't identify. Now, this has to do with a large part because I'm also an astronomer and I know what I'm looking at. I also have over 40,000 hours looking at the night sky visually in my life. And I've never seen a single object that I didn't either know of what it was or was able to identify very quickly. Give, give me an example of the kind of things you've seen that might fool a less sophisticated observer. Well, I've, I've seen uh, rocket re-entries, uh, obviously meteor fireballs, but some more interesting things would be things like ball lightning or St. Elmo's fire that occur that can attach itself to the aircraft. It's very, very uh, scary looking if you don't know what it is. James, you've had top secret security clearance. You've been involved in classified operations, including uh, in the area known as, well, Area 51. Uh, any Anything remarkable there? I mean, did you see that? I mean, maybe you can't tell us, but... I, I always start this by saying it is called Area 51 by the public. It's not called Area 51 uh, by the Air Force. It has a classified name. Any rate, no, they do conduct highly classified 
programs there, some quite dangerous. That's why they don't want anybody near it. But no, they have no, they have no live aliens, no dead aliens, and no spacecraft, alien spacecraft there. They just conduct classified projects there. Yeah, but I mean, couldn't I respond to that by saying, well, of course, that's what you're going to say because you're part of the cover-up. Well, you can say that, and I had, and uh, people have challenged me, why don't you tell me what the secrets are there? And I say, well, you get a top secret SCI security clearance, and you can find out what's there if you're going to be read in on the program. But uh, classified means classified. We're not supposed to talk about it. Well, finally, James, you know, when we talked to you last time, that's been a number of years now, we talked about the possibility that the aliens are actually here. After all, there are a lot of people who uh, hold that view. And you were skeptical. I think you're still skeptical. Is that true? Or, or has this report changed your mind? No, this report has reinforced my mind on skepticism. Uh, it just, it, there's so much pseudoscience involved in this that is not normally seen as straightforward you have to believe a lot of different weird things to believe that aliens are flying around in the atmosphere right now. And of course, uh, lots of people do believe that, but there's no evidence to support it. There's no rational evidence. And there's certainly no scientific evidence to support the idea that this is happening today or ever has for that matter. James McGahey, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you. James McGahey is a retired United States Air Force pilot, an astronomer, and director of the Grasslands Observatory. Okay, well, the Pentagon report said that it could not identify 143 of the 144 sightings collected over two decades. But our next guest has a few theories about what they might be. I think it's just looking at a jet from behind, and it's giving this optical illusion of a flying saucer, essentially. This is Skeptic Check, Pentagon UFO Report on Big Picture Science. that sound in a while, a tractor beam. <laughs> it's a common trope in science fiction film, isn't it? It is. It's some sort of beam that acts like a rope for pulling defunct spacecraft around or, or hauling cows up into the bay of your starship. It's really an example of how Hollywood and science fiction has fed our imaginations with the extraordinary technical capabilities of extraterrestrials, isn't it? Well, it is. So, I mean, it pays to look at the assumptions we make when we talk about the possibility of alien spaceships zipping around above our heads. Well, one is that intelligent extraterrestrials exist. I don't think there's any dispute there. I think they do exist. Two, that the aliens have such advanced technology they can manage interstellar travel and come here. It doesn't violate physics, but it's harder than most people think. But 
here's another component to these claims. The aliens have come all this way to do to do nothing. What do you mean nothing? They're flying through our skies, supposedly. Well, yeah, but they're not actually, you know, killing anybody. They're not helping anybody. All they do is come here to tease our Navy fighter pilots. But the 10,000 annual UFO reports, and that's just in the United States, that's more than a little intriguing. And it's not just military pilots who make such claims. There are commercial pilots, there are astronauts, defense ministers. I mean, the list is long and it's credentialed. So what else might explain these reports, and especially those Navy videos? Well, we imagine that science writer Mick West is not getting much rest these days. He's an expert on UFO videos, and he says that the UAPs in the famous Navy videos could be technology that we already understand. Mick West studied to be a pilot, and he was a video game programmer before he took to debunking conspiracy theories. So he has experience with how visual phenomena can fool the eye. Mick, you've been studying the Navy videos since they were first leaked to the public. And again, when the Pentagon released them somewhat officially, how many of these videos have you actually seen? Well, the, of the Navy videos, there's three that are official, and then there's maybe two or three more that are kind of semi-official, and I've looked at all of them. You said you've seen a number of these videos. Could you just give us an overview of your first impressions when you saw them? Did they look like something you had never seen before, or did they look familiar? Uh, the videos actually looked like something I'd seen before because I'd uh, dealt with a similar case with the Chilean Navy just a few months before these videos came out and I identified that one as being a plane and so I immediately thought it was probably the same type of thing when I started looking at these videos. Well, we're going to take a look at a specific video, the so-called FLIR, F-L-I-R video, to get your take. It's a short video. I think all the videos are quite short and it was made with a forward-looking infrared camera, F-L-I-R, on an F-18 Hornet Navy jet. Can you describe what that video looks like? Well, uh, first of all, F-L-I-R, forward-looking infrared, sounds really complicated, but all it means is the camera faces forward. It just distinguishes it from cameras that face sideways. It's not anything particularly special, just infrared camera. Uh, what we see is kind of like a little fuzzy dot off in the distance. And we see the uh, operator change camera modes quite a few times, and it looks like the object kind of moves around. But if you carefully look at what's going on here, you can see that it, the object itself isn't actually moving. It's just a result of the camera changes. Uh, and this fooled a lot of people originally, but uh, I think the analysis actually shows that it's not actually showing a moving object, just something that is flying away in level flight. But when you say changing mode, it goes from infrared to... Yeah, infrared to what they call TV mode, which is just regular black and white TV. But they also change the field of view. So they change between a wide angle and narrow angle, the, the zoom levels, essentially. And each time it does that, the camera loses lock. Well, why would anyone say that it might be an alien spacecraft? I mean, what was your explanation? What it looks like to me is some kind of distant aircraft. And the video, we can tell, is a bit out of focus. And so you just simply can't tell what type of aircraft it is. So what you're saying is that the videos, which are the basis of the argument of those who think that something non-terrestrial is happening here, could be unrelated to the radar uh, results and might just be you're looking up the tailpipes of a jet that happens to be in front of the Navy jet. Yeah, I think that's probably what the case is in this particular video. And uh, one of the other videos called the gimbal video, uh, similarly, I think, is just looking at a jet from behind and it's giving this optical illusion uh, of, a, of a flying saucer, essentially. And then another one, the GoFast video, 
uh, I think probably isn't a jet. It's probably something more like a balloon. But I think the issue here is that people have been making uh, claims about these three videos, that they show extraordinary things. But when you actually analyze the videos, they don't show extraordinary things. Let, let me just elaborate on that uh, explanation for this video. These are infrared cameras. Generally, they're in that mode. And that means they're sensitive to heat. So if you have a twin engine jet, you know, uh, 10 miles, 100 miles, I mean, you know, if you're up at 20,000 feet, the horizon is 200 miles away. So you could see a plane 100 miles away uh, with an infrared camera if you're kind of looking up the tailpipes of the jets of that plane, right? Because you're seeing all that heat. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and in this video, right at the start of the video, you see actually what looks like a star shape. And this is really the, the glare from the engines because you are looking directly at it. Later on in the video, it seems that the, uh, the plane turns a bit to the left. And now you can see that that glare moves over to, to the side. And I think you can actually see a bit of the plane in, in the later images. Well, but Mick, you have a pilot's license, right? Mm -hmm. And you've been a video game programmer. And I'm wondering how those experiences and that training, as it were, um, trained your eye for understanding how visual data can fool us. Are you coming in from a privileged position in some ways because you've both been a pilot and you've worked with, you know, tricking the eye? Yeah, I never actually got my, my pilot's license, but I did, did do all the training for it. Uh, one of the things they train you is to scan the sky in a particular pattern, because if you just stare at a particular spot, you get uh, this, this, type of, uh, um, this type of blindness where you don't see things in, in, the, in the sides or even where you're looking at. So you have to look, uh, you have to scan the skies. So you, there are these things that you train for, that you know that there are optical illusions that pilots fall prey to and sensory illusions as well. So that's something I was certainly uh, used to. Uh, and you know, being a video game programmer, it, that's all about kind of creating illusions and then understanding the mathematics behind that. What actually creates a 2D image, the image that we see in front of us is two-dimensional essentially, but it comes from a 3D world. So I understand how you actually take that 3D world and convert it to 2D, which then allows me to look at these 2D images, these videos and photos, and convert them back into a 3D reality and figure out what's going on. In the Go Fast video, what you're seeing is what looks like a round white object sliding past the plane back toward its rear at very high rate of speed, and you can see the surface of the ocean beneath it. And your suggestion is that that thing is maybe at half the altitude of the plane, and the motion is only apparent motion due to the, the, the motion of the jet. Exactly, yes. Uh, the, you can work all this out from the math on the screen. It, uh, once, once the camera locks onto the object, a range pops up. It says 4.4 nautical miles. We also know the angle down that the camera is pointing. I think it's about 26 degrees. Uh, so you can just take the sign of 26 and multiply it by uh, that distance and it will give you the vertical altitude below where the plane is. It's very simple. It's high school trigonometry. It's basically 10th grade trigonometry. Uh, and then you, you know, from there, you know the altitude of the plane because that's also on the screen. So you know, it's just very, very simple. There's only three numbers required and two simple equations. One's just a subtraction. You can figure out how high the object is. And then it's a little bit more complicated, but uh, given that you can figure out how fast it is going by figuring out where it is at the start and where it is at the end, and then subtracting those two things. And that shows you that it's actually, it's high up and it's moving slow. 
And you mentioned it being white and uh, the camera is a thermal camera, but it's in black hot mode, which means if something is hot, it will show up as black. It's showing up as white, which means it's actually colder than the ocean, which means it's probably just at the same ambient temperature of the air at around uh, 11, 12,000 feet, which would be you know, pretty cold, something around freezing or below, uh, which means it's probably something like a balloon. And that's what fits all, all of the data points here. Well, you know, that brings up a question. I, this sounds almost like an attack on your analysis. It isn't that. It's that your analysis is so, is so straightforward, clear, and relatively simple. We're not, you know, invoking any very difficult mm -hmm. uh, either geometry or physics here. Why is it that the official preliminary report says that out of 145 cases, the intelligence agencies could only figure out one? You figured out three. Well, uh, the one they figured out was a balloon. I don't know if it's this particular case, but we don't actually know which cases they were considering. I think they probably did consider the FLIR case, uh, but we're not sure if they considered the gimbal case because they don't discuss the details of any of the cases they look into. And they've said quite specifically that they're not going to make that analysis public because it generally contains classified information such as the radar data uh, or the, even the infrared camera data. It's all, it's all classified and they don't want that data getting out there. So they may well have uh, done similar analysis, but what they haven't done and what I haven't done is identify exactly what the objects are. You know, I think that the FLIR object is probably a distant plane, but I haven't identified that for sure. And I certainly haven't identified which plane it was. And similarly with the other ones, the, the GoFast video, I think, is probably a balloon, but you could make a, a reasonable case that it could be some kind of large bird or perhaps even some kind of, uh, some kind of drone. Well, what about that possibility that these are, in fact, craft from you know, Russia or China that uh, are sent up to you know, kind of spy on our planes? It's definitely a concern that they might be some kind of spy platform. And this is something that the report touches on. And it's something that definitely should be investigated if, the, if that's uh, an actual possibility. Uh, and we know that is the type of thing that we would expect Russia and China and other, other countries to actually do. And I'm sure that we are doing it in those countries as well, simply testing the uh, limits of the, the defenses of those countries and spying on them. And a very simple way of spying on somebody is just simply to get a, a radio listening device close enough to listen to the communications. So you could fly a drone up to a battleship and listen to the local communications so that's definitely something that needs to be looked into. But again, they're just going with uh, the default and their, de their default uh, position in these things is not to comment just in case because they don't know what information might be useful to an adversary. So they just simply don't release any information just, uh, just because they don't know, you know what the downside could be. You know, why take a chance? So what is the big picture takeaway? What does our fascination with UFOs reveal? And what is next for the believers? Mick West addresses those questions next. It is our regular look at critical thinking, skeptic check, Pentagon UFO report on Big Picture Science. We've learned what's in the Pentagon UFO report, and the one thing that's not 
is a mention of aliens. But there does seem to be something cluttering the skies. Is that a concern? We return to science writer Mick West for some final big-picture thoughts about unidentified aerial phenomena and what conclusions we can draw from the evidence. So the objects don't apparently pose a threat to U.S. security, although they could be some sort of spy mission there to gather evidence. But, you know, should I step on an airplane without concern now? I mean, (laughs) you know, if there are things up there in the sky that we really haven't identified, if that's really the case, wouldn't the FAA be concerned? Well, you know, planes are not crashing into these things. It doesn't seem like it's a very big issue. Uh, It's an issue for the Navy in that they keep seeing these things in their training ranges where they go to practice their maneuvers in their planes and they will quite often see something in the sky. And a lot of that they identify as being airborne clutter, things like uh, birds and balloons and drones and uh, even plastic bags. Uh, And this is just becoming a problem with an increasingly cluttered airspace and I think especially with drones. So it's not something that actually is causing danger this airspace clutter but it's it's a navigation hazard really and it's something that needs to be investigated and perhaps the situation could be improved well i have a question for both of you seth and mick because i'm wondering where you both get your stamina for providing alternative explanations you have both done countless number of interviews and i'm wondering how you both maintain your equanimity and why there is so much anger when you come out and say, you know, the evidence isn't there and you provide alternative explanations. Could you both address that, please? Mick, go ahead. Or you want yeah, me to go uh, I, I, I think there's a lot of passion in the UFO community, in part because a lot of people who are UFO believers have had some personal experience. Uh, they think they have seen a UFO and some of them even think they've had some kind of closer encounter. And so a lot of the people who get angry at me are angry because they feel like I'm attacking their personal experience. But really I'm not, I'm just trying to analyze the evidence and seeing where the evidence uh, leads me and what conclusions it leads me to. And I actually really enjoy that aspect of it. It's kind of like little solving little puzzles and that's one of the reasons I, I keep doing it. And you know, sure it can be a little tiring getting the same responses uh, all the time, but uh, you get used to it. Uh, after a while and you know it doesn't doesn't really bother me that much and if someone it becomes particularly obnoxious I just I just mute them and move on I I think my my response to that Molly would be uh, very similar to mix I hear from people every day who've seen things Uh, I ask them if they have photographic evidence of this you know pictures videos and about 50% of the cases they do and they'll send that to me and I can look at it and Thanks to the fact that photography has been a very long-term hobby for me, and I did computer animation and stuff like that, it's uh, you know it's often the case that I can offer an explanation that doesn't make them happy. I have to say, uh, they don't come back and say, "Well, thanks, Seth, for explaining that that's internal reflection in my mm-hmm. zoom lens or something like that." They never do that. They just you know berate you for not facing the fact that these are alien craft. And so I want to follow up, in fact, with Mick. You know, the UFO folks can say that, okay, this report just hides more than it reveals. And they've been waiting for at least five years, best I can tell, to validate their opinion that we're being visited by hoping for disclosure. In other words, the government's going to prove their case for them. And they haven't done that. So where do you think the UFO community goes from here? Yeah, I think there were very mixed reactions to the report. Uh, they did have very high hopes that the, the government would be essentially announcing that they had evidence of aliens. 
And now there's a lot of reading between the lines. And I think they're kind of casting about at the moment, searching for a, a new kind of equilibrium to move forward. I think really what's going to happen is just they will transfer their, their hopes and expectations to the next report. As apparently this is a preliminary report and there's going to be another one perhaps in six months time. So they will just start waiting for that one. And then when that one arrives and doesn't reveal that there are aliens, they will just uh, move their expectations into the future again. So it's a never ending story. Unfortunately so, yeah. It's the same old thing that we get with things like uh, millennial cults and doomsday cults. Yeah, people make a prediction about when everything is going to be revealed, when the end of the world will happen. That date arrives, then they uh, give you a new date. Seth, you are a photographer and also an astronomer. I'm wondering why we don't have one high-resolution photo of a UFO or a UAP Many people who are not even professional photographers have digital cameras. So why are we? Why don't we have a good photograph? And if Navy pilots are going up and they're seeing these things regularly, why doesn't someone just take um, a high-quality camera with them? Yeah. Uh, well, I think that this this has been noted, uh, Molly, that as the photographic equipment becomes not only better but also more widely uh, available, right? Everybody has a pretty good, a really good actually, camera in their pockets and something that can also make video. But the aliens, if that's what they are, have managed to conspire to move farther away as the cameras have gotten better. So that the evidence is always on the edge of what the photographic technology can uh, reliably image. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that. I think aliens exist in what I call the low information zone which is, uh, is, is just the, the situation or the circumstances which are just a little bit beyond what you can actually resolve uh, something interesting out of them, which often is simply them being too far away for whichever camera you have, or perhaps just being out of focus and very close, or you can see them close up, but it's too dark to take a photograph, or perhaps they are uh, kind of ambiguous in, as to whether they are very small objects or very far away objects because you, you lack the contextual information. We never get things that venture just onto this side of the low information zone so they can be identified, which of course really points very strongly to the absence of them actually existing. And as the saying, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, but you know, eventually it kind of is. If there were these things all over the world, you would expect to have some evidence of them being here. And the absence of that evidence, I think, does strongly indicate evidence of absence. Well, finally, Mick, what do you make of the lack of corroborating evidence that you would expect for these things, right? I mean, our satellites can image the entire Earth every day. There's a whole, you know, there are almost a thousand of them, and they're not all mm -hmm. the U.S. military's satellites. I mean, the other countries have these things, and they don't see these craft. And you could say, oh, well, the, you know, the, the Americans are keeping it mum. Well, okay, if you want to believe that, but is every country keeping it mum? Or are these incapable of seeing alien craft if there are any? Yeah, I think that's a great point. Now, satellites, uh, perhaps they're not covering every single square inch of the, of the planet in sufficiently high resolution. But something that is, is air traffic control radar. Uh, pretty much every square foot of the United States is covered in, in, in three dimensions in, in many cases with uh, flight control radar, which tracks the positions of all these planes. 
Now, if you ever go into a, uh, an air traffic control tower, you will see the, the radar screens and they show all the planes on. Now that's actually filtered data. The computer takes the raw radar data and it filters out things like, uh, like birds and balloons that aren't important and just leaves the, the planes. And if you look at the raw data for that radar, you will see everything. Every little thing, every little thing that shows up on the radar will 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 appear on the screen, and it's very messy. And you know, in the olden days, the uh, the air traffic controllers had to filter it out kind of manually by looking at what's what's what. Uh, but that data is recorded, so we actually have recordings of the raw radar data covering the entire United States going back years, and no UFOs have shown up in it. So I think that's very, very telling that we don't see UFOs showing up in these large data sets that do cover large amounts uh, of the country and indeed the world. Mick West, thanks so very much for speaking to us. You're welcome. Thank you. Mick West is a science writer, a self-described debunker, and the author of Escaping the Rabbit Hole, which examines conspiracy theories, how people get pulled into them, and how people can get out. So, Seth, we are coming to this question earlier in the show than usual because there is a lot to say. When it comes to the Pentagon UFO report and weighing the evidence that we're being visited by aliens, what is the big picture of what we've learned in this episode in your mind? Well, I think it's that the Pentagon report, it didn't even mention aliens. So that explanation, you know, it's simply not necessary. Mick West showed us that there are other ways to explain these things. And consequently, you can't fall back and say, this is proof of aliens in our airspace. But there was a category in the Pentagon report of other. Couldn't we say that other is a catch-all for aliens? Well, <laughs> uh, if there is evidence for aliens, that would probably be put into that category. But, you know, that's complete supposition because the report doesn't even mention that possibility. You know, Seth, I've been following you on social media. Maybe you didn't know that. I'm one of your followers. One of the three. <laughs> and I notice you get a lot of pushback. I mentioned this earlier in the show, but you get a lot of pushback from people who say that you are not taking this issue seriously. And how do you respond to that? Well, yes, they do say that. The other thing they do is they say a lot of things about my about me personally, if you will. So that's, those are sort of ad hominem attacks. And I understand that because they're very emotional about this. This is something that they're very excited about. They had high hopes for this report that it was going to lend validity to their, their point of view. And I'm coming in here and saying, nah, nah, it's, it's actually not true. I can understand that that might tick you off. I certainly take it seriously because, look, I work here at the SETI Institute and our flagship program is to look for extraterrestrial intelligence. So we're looking for aliens, too. But that doesn't mean that I'm in, in, inclined to believe that they're here. One argument that people will make on social media is that you can't admit that there's good evidence for visitation because that would jeopardize your SETI searches. That simply isn't true, but a lot of people make that argument. Let's be clear what SETI stands for in case anyone is in doubt, and that's fair enough. We've had a lot of acronyms in this show. It is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So, Seth, how is it that SETI scientists can believe that the aliens are out there, but they do not believe that the aliens are here? Could you speak to the mission of SETI scientists and how that differs from that of ufologists who say that 
the aliens are visiting us. Yeah. I mean, you could say, well, okay, we're both looking for aliens. That's true. The SETI Institute researches all possibilities for life in space, including, you know, microbes on Mars and so forth. But when it comes to looking for intelligent aliens, which is what we're talking about in this show, we use giant antennas. We try and eavesdrop on signals, okay? And we would never claim that we'd found ET unless those signals could be picked up again by somebody else with a different setup, a different instrument, because, you know, that's the way science works. You can make any claim you want, but if you can't back it up with data, nobody's going to take it terribly seriously. And that is a big difference between UFO studies and what we do. We're doing experiments. The UFO folk are trying to explain ex post facto things that they've seen or measured or whatever. Would you love to have evidence that the aliens are visiting us? Oh, absolutely. And and not just me. You know, there are tens of thousands of of scientists out there who would just drop everything they're doing and start investigating things if they thought there were, in fact, alien craft in our skies. You know, there really isn't very much that you can think of that would be more interesting than that. We noted in the beginning of the show the role that popular culture has had in feeding our imagination with images of aliens and their spaceships. And the idea of wanting to believe. Can you say more about that, the, the, the desire on the parts of some people that we want to believe that they're here? We do, and I don't want to bring religion into this, but there are parallels, right? People have an idea of what's going on in the world, what's important in the world, and if you come in and challenge that and even trivialize it by saying, oh, come on, you know, there's no good evidence of this, that, or the other, you know, that's a kind of a personal attack in a way. And, and a cherished belief. It's a cherished belief, and it's one they may have had for a very long time. And there's also the fact that it's a little bit empowering, I think, if you're sort of a person who thinks, well, the aliens are visiting and there's cover-up, that you know something very important that, uh, you know, that the pointy-headed academics down at the local university poo-poo. And there was a time when such unexplained phenomena would have been filled with angels or sprites or fairies or even ghosts. Yeah, that's true. We've just replaced all of those with aliens. And the big advantage of that replacement is that, you know, you have science on your side. I mean, you know, people like, well, me, but but many others would say the idea that, you know, there isn't any other life in the galaxy is kind of, you know, that's very self-centered and probably wrong, almost assuredly wrong. And the fact that there are advanced aliens with, with spacecraft or whatever in the galaxy, yes, that's certainly possible, too. We assume that's true when we do our experiments. So you're kind of, you know, your, your beliefs are endorsed, if you will, by this widespread belief at the level of science. Let's say, Seth, that we assume aliens are visiting us now and look at the logic of that. Um, why would they visit us now? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question, Molly. I mean, the Earth has been sitting here for four and a half billion years, right? That's a long time. And UFO reports began in the late 1940s, which is a tiny, tiny sliver of the time that Earth has been around. And it's also a tiny sliver of the amount of time that Homo sapiens has been around, right? So either you have to say that they're here now because, well, why? We don't know. Or uh, they've been here all along and somehow escaped the notice of, you know, Julius Caesar and a whole bunch of other people. Looking at the physics of interstellar travel is interesting because you said it can be done, but it's not so easy. What, what does it take to fly from one star system to another? Well, either you have to have 
an enormous amount of energy at your command. And, you know, people do the numbers. It's very trivial. If you want to send something maybe one-tenth the size of the Starship Enterprise, right, you're going economy on this. Why? What kind of distances are we talking about? Well, you're talking about light years of distance, which means you're talking about tens of trillions of miles to nearby stars. Uh, you know, our fastest rocket takes 75,000 years to get to the next star over. Now, presumably the aliens have something better than our fastest rockets, but <laughs> but you have to make that assumption. But that's okay because, in fact, even if they can, you know, want to get here in a, a time that's short compared to whatever their lifetimes may be, they might have to go half the speed of light. So say they could go half the speed of light. There are all sorts of problems there. You're running into interstellar material that's going to give all the critters on board cancer right away, you know. This is very practical stuff. But the amount of energy required is so enormous that it doesn't sound very feasible to do that. Interstellar travel may not be feasible for anyone. But, you know, I'm not going to say that it's impossible because, again, it doesn't violate physics. But the other possibility, and people bring this up all the time, are faster than light travel modes such as jumping into a wormhole you've made and, you know, then it doesn't take you any time. Uh, you know, it's not clear that you can actually do that because that works on blackboards, but it may not work in reality. Well, so in, in summary, Seth, um, final summary, in summary, how do you sum up? It, is, say, it, is, it is summer, so go ahead. <laughs> what is the summary of the evidence? I mean, what's wrong with just saying we don't know what it is. It could be alien spacecraft. Yeah, I think that in the end, it just boils down to the fact that none of the evidence that we know about points unequivocally toward an alien explanation, right? There are these puzzling things, and as Mick West pointed out, well, you can understand them without having to resort to the alien explanation. And I think that's the point. If it's ambiguous, don't immediately jump to aliens did it, because you, you might be wrong. Well, we are not skeptical about the evidence regarding the talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin, who helped make Big Picture Science possible. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Sholsky David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates, among other things, the existence of intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. This episode of Big Picture Science is one of our regular looks at critical thinking. Skeptic Check, Pentagon UFO Report. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org.